Good morning, FCBC Walnut English Congregation. Welcome to our online worship service. I want to begin with a few announcements so that you can be informed about what's going informed about what's going on in our church. I want to continue to invite you to join us on Wednesday nights for our prayer meeting on our Google platform. It's the same Google room each week, uh, but you should be receiving an email uh, each week that lets you know uh, where we're meeting and it's, it starts at 8.30 p.m. Uh, the second thing I want to do is I want to invite those of you who are parents of children uh, and families, young families, young marrieds, to uh, follow us if you're not already following us uh, and joining on Facebook and join our FCBC Walnut Families Facebook group because on there you'll find resources as well as communication uh, that is important and pertinent to family ministry. Uh, Thirdly, I want to thank all of you for your generous giving and your continued giving during this time. Please continue to give online. Uh, if you prefer to mail in your check, you can do that as well. You can mail in your offering to our church. For more information about that, please e email offering at fcbcwalnut.org, offering at fcbcwalnut.org. And related to that announcement, uh, we have a, a need in our monthly missions offering. Uh, Pre-COVID, we were averaging about $13,000 in the monthly missions budget uh, to support over 18 uh, units of, of missionaries uh, globally and worldwide. Uh, but because of COVID-19, and since then, our, off our offering for missions is averaging only $7,000 per month. So it's just a little bit of a gap between $13,000 and 7,000. So if the Lord is leading you, I just do want to encourage you, if you're able to, please consider, prayerfully consider uh, giving to missions. And the last announcement is that you should have received an email this week uh, from me. Uh, and that is an email inviting you to join Pastor Terrence and I for a pastoral talk on the state of evangelicalism, racial reconciliation, uh, and, and, and all the disunity and everything that's happening uh, within the evangelical American church lately. That's going to be held on July 5th, Sunday, July 5th at 2 p.m. on the Google platform. The link is included in that email. Um, for those of you who have questions, we invite you in that email to respond to that email to submit your questions beforehand so that we can prepare and we can address you on that. Okay. So with that, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we come before you today. Uh, all of us in our homes or in our cars. And even though we are scattered, the church scattered right now, we know that we are gathered together in spirits. Father, I pray that you would continue to watch over our souls. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to protect us from COVID-19. Lord, beyond that, Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to equip us as Christians in terms of what it means to live in a secular society. Lord, help us, Lord in regard to what's going on in our nation and our world to continue to be peacemakers, agents of reconciliation and agents of the gospel. Lord, we thank you ultimately for the salvation that we can have in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. He took our place as our substitute on the cross. And Lord, you received that offering, that sacrifice, and you raised your son from dead from the dead from the grave during that first easter sunday so lord i pray lord that we would experience that resurrection life lord it's in jesus name that we pray amen good morning brothers and sisters today we come together to observe the holy communion let me read to you first corinthians chapter 11 verses 22 to 26 
For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death." Until he comes, it is the same passage on the communion. But today, I want to focus on who are the recipients of the communion that Jesus instituted. He served the communion to the disciples, including he served the disciples to Peter, who will deny him three times later. He served the communion to Thomas, who will three days later、uh, doubted Jesus's resurrection. He served the communion to the eleven. Who that night in the Garden of Gethsemane will fall asleep instead of keep, keeping alert in prayer, and they will also desert Jesus when Jesus was arrested. See, the disciples were not perfect, but Jesus served the communion to them, so that by remembering Jesus's love, his sacrificial love on the cross, over and over again, they will grow in their love for Jesus. In the same way, we are not perfect either. But as the Lord invites us to observe Him through Holy Communion of the love and sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for us, it is the desire of the Lord and for the church that we will grow bit by bit to be more and more like Jesus. You know, in a safe at home order, have you doubted Jesus like Thomas? Have you denied Jesus like Peter? Have you fallen asleep and? Deserted Jesus, just like the eleventh. Today we want to come together to reflect on that and to confess before the Lord in preparation for us to observe the Holy Communion. Let us pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for inviting us to come to remember the Lord, though we are imperfect. But through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and through the work on the cross, through the redemption on the cross of Jesus, you have taken our place to receive the penalty of sin on our behalf, so that we can be reconciled with the Heavenly Father. So draw us to you today as we observe the Holy Communion, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and and allow us to come together. To grow deep in Christ, to reflect on the glory of the cross, and to walk with you, in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. The Holy Communion is for born again Christians who are baptized. So, if you have not been baptized, we invite you to observe the Holy Communion in your spirit. And those who stay at home,、uh, you can take the bread and the cup in preparation for the Holy Communion. If you have done so. I want to invite you to stand, if it is possible, together. Jesus reminds us when he took the bread and said, "This is my body for you. Take in remembrance of me." Let us take together to remember the Lord. After supper, he took the cup and said, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." Drink in remembrance of me. Let us drink to remember the Lord.
Let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let us prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's word. The title of our sermon today is In a Secular Province, but Under God's Providence. Sorry for the, for the typo on the slide. That should be In a Secular Province, but Under God's Providence. That is my bad in terms of typing that out in the slide. So the title of today's message is In a Secular Province, but Under God's Providence. And what we mean by that is all of us, we live in a secular province. A province can be defined as a state or a, or a part of a greater nation or segment of a greater country. And so we live in a province of California, but we are under the governance of the United States of America. And what we want to see this morning is that God cares for us even though we live in a secular province and a secular nation, even though our society is largely secular for the most part, God still cares for us, and He cares for us in three ways. And today I want you to see those three ways. One of them is His providence, but it is through His prophets, and for us that's His prophetic word, through His providence, and through His protection. And I'll give you those as we go along. So we're continuing our series this morning from... Ezra, and we find ourselves this morning in Ezra chapter 5, where we see the Jews that who have returned from Babylonian exile, they're living under the greater society of Persian rule, yet Jerusalem as a city was in a province known as Beyond the River. That's what their state was called. That was That's the name of their pro- province, Beyond the the river, beyond the Euphrates River. And so God's people were under the rule of, at this point in chapter 5, King Darius, the Persian king, but yet they were still locally under the governance of a governor named Tetanai. So over the next two weeks, we're going to see the providential hand of God at play. And let me define what providence is. Providence is different from the miracles of God. Now, a miracle involves God supernaturally intervening, interrupting, and disturbing the natural course of life. So, the natural course of life involves physical death. People, we get older and we die, and if someone were to resurrect from the dead, that is a miracle. Okay, That is God interrupting the natural course of living. Providence is different. Providence is when God takes something that's, that can be explained naturally or through common sense or just through by, by natural events and he uses it and orchestrates it for his purposes and his, for his glory. Let me give you an example. Let's say you own a small business and yes, I'm thinking about our society now. And let's just say that someone decides to sue you because you don't have in your small business gender 
neutral bathrooms. But you're in the process of hiring legal counsel when all of a sudden you get a phone call, you get an email that the accusers have decided to drop the lawsuits. So you think, wow, praise God, what a miracle, Lord. Well, you should thank God, and yes, God is sovereign, but that's not a miracle. Because it turns out that God was providentially working because the accuser decided to drop that lawsuit because at that same time, the government decided to investigate that accuser because they were guilty of tax evasion. So you see that you can explain things naturally. You can explain what happened. But that's the difference between a miracle versus God's providence. And providence is how God cares for his people. And both supernatural miracles and God's providence, it all falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And you, you're going to see a little bit of, of this example come out in, at play today in Ezra chapter 5. If you have God's word, will you take it and please turn with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5, and we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. And before we read the passage, or verses 1 and 2, let me give you a little bit of an explanation. So point number one, the first way that God cares for his people in a secular society is by sending his prophets. And for you and I, this is his prophetic word. For you and I, we don't have prophets coming today giving us brand new divine revelation. Instead, the prophetic function is calling people back to repentance and calling people to attention and to pay attention to the word of God and to obey the word of God. And so we have God's prophetic word. Israel had not had prophets for a long time. They hadn't heard directly from the voice of God and they haven't heard from God. And so God, during this time, in Ezra chapter 5, he sends Haggai and Zechariah. And the beautiful thing for you and me is that we have their prophecies. We have the books of Haggai and Zechariah for us at our disposal. And God sent Haggai and Zechariah to basically light a fire within the hearts of the people. So at the end of Ezra chapter 4, where we left off last week, the work of rebuilding the temple was suspended because of, because of opposition. And the work had come to a halt. And then the book of Haggai tells us that many of the returnees were carrying on with life. So while the temple of God laid in ruins, ruins, and while there were plans to rebuild the temple, it's as if they gave up. So a practical explanation of this, or an illustration, would be, you all know that we have a building project going on. And COVID-19 put that on hold for just a little bit. But imagine because we're not physically gathered, and imagine because we're not out of the pandemic, that we just said, okay, we're not going to ever pick that up again. It's indefinite. We're not going to build. Now, that's not the case with us, right? We decided that this project needs to go on, and in a safe way, the workers came back, and the project continues. But what's happening here is very different, because we're just building one building of many places, and we know that the people of God... Uh, represent the presence of God in this world. But in the Old Testament, before Christ came and before the New Covenant was, was, was fully established, God's presence was symbolized 
in his temple. And so to give up on the temple would be to give up on prioritizing building a house where people would come together and meet God and experience his wonderful, glorious presence. But what Haggai tells us is that the Israelites were saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And you can see that in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. So as the clock is ticking, God's work remained neglected. And Haggai calls the people, people of God, it is time to rise, it is time to repent, it is time to return to the work of the Lord. But what moved them? What moved the people in Ezra to respond and to return, to repent and to return to the work of the Lord was the word of God. Now, let me show you this in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Jeshua, the son of jo jo Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, the key word here is they arose, that the leaders felt confidence because of the word of God and because God had sent his word through and with his prophets that these leaders arose and began to lead the rebuilding project. At the same time, the people of God arose. They arose because that's what happens when God speaks. When God speaks, his people stand and they arise and they get back to work because they hear from the word of God. They hear from the prophets of God. Now, Haggai rebuked God's people because while the temple of the Lord laid in ruins, what Haggai tells us in, in Haggai 1.4 is the people were actually remodeling their homes. And Haggai 1.4 uses this, this language of paneled houses. And what scholars tell us, and it is likely true, that what the people were doing, and this is horrible, okay, this is horrible, because none of you would ever do this. I know of, none of us would ever do, do this. They were going to Jerusalem. They were taking this very nice wood and the materials that were dedicated for the temple. They were taking that home and they were building, and, and they were building, uh, improving their own homes. And that's what it means, paneled houses. They were doing home improvement. So imagine if, if any of us came here to the building site and began to take materials, whatever that might be, and started to improve our own homes, right? Well, what would you say? What would we say of us? We would say, no, that is wrong. That is illegal. That's sinful. And, well, that's what's happening to the people. And so no wonder the tone of Haggai is so strong. And he's saying, not only have y'all neglected the work of the Lord, but you have abused you have abused the materials that, that were blessedly given to rebuild the temple and you're investing in yourselves. So they had no excuse. They could not say, we, didn't, we don't have the resources, we don't have the time, or we don't have the calling. Instead, they were, they, they were focused on themselves. And so many times in Haggai, Haggai uses this call, this phrase, consider your ways. Consider your way of life. Consider how you're living that's what it's saying. It's saying examine your life. Look at your life. Look at your pockets. There's money in there. But you're just prioritizing your own. And that was the case with them. 
Now, keep in mind that when the, the decree was issued permitting the Jews to return to their homeland, most of the exiled Jews remained in Babylon where they settled down and prospered. It was only the faithful few. And so commentators tell us that approximately 42,000 people, and to be exact, 42,360 plus an additional 7,337 servants and 200 singers. The numbers are not that important. I just want you to see that this is a very small number compared to all of the Israelites. It was just this faithful few, this small group that made the long journey back to Judah with Zerubbabel. The people, and what I'm trying to show you is the people had a zeal for God. Zerubbabel himself was a descendant of David, and later Christ would come through that line of David. So these are very faithful people being led by a faithful leader. But even the most faithful people, when they don't hear from the Word of God, and when there's opposition, they forget about the work of the Lord. But all they need. So what do faithful people need? People who love the Lord. People who are willing to sacrifice. What do they need? They need to hear God speak. You and I, beloved, we are blessed. We have 66 books called the Bible. We have the Word of God here. But there are times, too, where we get busy with life. We're not doing things like neglecting the building of a temple, but what we're doing is forgetting sometimes about God's vision, His purpose, His great commission. And all we need is the Word of God to remind us, those who truly have the Holy Spirit living within you, when you hear the Spirit-inspired Word, something happens. The Holy Spirit takes that Word and he, he says to you as an individual, look, what you heard, that is my Word. What you've read, that is authoritative. And He begins to speak into our conscience and our hearts and our minds are renewed and we're moved to action. The Word of the Lord kickstarts revival within the souls of His people. And you notice back in Ezra in verse 2, it says, Then Zerubbabel, we read this, the son of Sheatel and Joshua, the son of Josedak, arose. Beloved, we are in this time where we so desperately need to hear the Word of God. There's so much going on in what society and social media calls an echo chamber, where there's information constantly coming to us. Some good, some bad. But it's coming with all different types of motivations. And even things that are supposed to be scientifically researched or socially, historically backed, sometimes we need, or all the time, we need discernment. Where does our discernment come from? How do we think through how to live in a secular society? How does God care for us? And we often look to God and say, God, how do we think through things? What do we, what do we think about certain issues? And the Lord says, look to my word. And look to the application of my word. And God has provided for us pastors, teachers, Sunday school teachers, scholars, and different leaders to help us understand God's word if we need a little assistance. And that's what God provided for his people. He provided prophets. He provided leaders like Zerubbabel. This leads us to point number two. The first way that God cares for his people is through his prophets. And for us, that's through his prophetic word. The second is God's providence. God's providence. We see this specifically in verses 3 to 4, and then in various parts of chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ezra. God's providence, that's point number 2. God's providence is seen in how He is actually going to take 
the opposition that we see in verses 3 to 4, he's going to take that opposition and he's going to use it to actually guarantee the completion of the temple. He's going to use this opposition to fortify the faithfulness of the Jewish refugees and these these uh, Jewish uh, people who have returned from exile. And he's going to use it to give them, in a sense, a blank check so that everything that they need for the temple would be complete, including all of the sacrifices that they need. All the animals would be purchased for them. And this is how God generously and graciously cares for his people. But his means of caring comes through opposition. His means of care includes persecution. Sometimes we don't want persecution. We, we, we need to remember that the cost of our salvation came at the suffering of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that resulted in his resurrection. But even the gospel coming to you and I came at the cost of missionaries. Going back to the apostles and early Christian leaders and then missionaries sacrificing their lives, some of them, just so that we can have the gospel reaching us today. So notice in verse 3, and we'll read it in a moment, but in verse 3, we see persecution. God is providentially going to work this persecution for his purposes. But before we read it, we're introduced to a governor named Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river. And again, this refers to the Euphrates River. So you see that the Persian king has established a region that includes both Judah and Jerusalem. And the governor of this region was named Tetanai. And he's listed here with, uh, with another official named uh, Shitar Boznai and other associates. And so this group of government officials, they confront the Israelites who gave, and they come to them saying, who gave you a decree? Now before we read it, I, I want you to realize that some commentators, not every commentator is conservative, evangelically. Some commentators, some of the best exegetical commentators, they tell us that the governor and his officials, they aren't persecuting God's people. Uh, they're simply just coming around and doing their job like a building inspector. But I want you to see the details in how Ezra writes. I want you to see the details that this is indeed persecution. And then I'll give you an illustration of that to show you that it's persecution. But let me first read to you verses 3 and 4. It says, At the time, at the same time, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and and Sheshtar Boznai and their associates came to them and spoke to them. And notice what they say. First, they said, Who gave you a decree to build this house? In other words, who gave you the permit to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, and here's the persecution, what are the names of the men who are building this building? In other words, he wanted a list of names to report to King Darius to say, hey king, I just want you to know what these Jews are doing. They're building this huge building. And just in case you want to prosecute them, here's the list of the names of the people. Okay, And this is very interesting because here's the illustration. What if a governing official were to come by and say to us, hey, I see that you're building this permit. Can I just, building this building, can I see your permit? Okay, asking for the permit. I mean, that's just doing their job. Can I see that it, it follows code? I mean, that's part of their job. But then if they were to say, you know, where'd you get the money to build this? Who gave you? You're a church? You're a nonprofit church? Hmm. Can I get the list of all of your donors? 
But, but not only do I need a name, their names, I need their social security number. I need their tax returns and I need to proof of their citizenship. <laughs> I, I want to make sure, we want to make sure they're, they're legally giving. I mean, wouldn't that be persecution? Because that's what persecution happens. That's how persecution happens, right? It's, it's interrogation. It's intimidation. It's I want information. I want names. Because if there are consequences, I want people to fear that something may happen to them, their livelihood and their families. This is intimidation. This is coming to Israel and coming to the people and coming and saying, why are you building? But the Lord is working, right? We live in a secular society that continues to challenge the biblical worldview. But we, but we must strive to be agents of truth, hope, reconciliation, grace, mercy, and justice. And beloved, yes, we stand against the flow of the tide of culture. Jesus' church must be a redemptive agent in society. But remember that we are indeed building a different type of temple. Now, you and I read this and we're like, you know what, we're not building a temple. The church is not a physical building per se. The church is the people of God, true. But remember, the Israelites were building a physical structure, but you and I, we are the temple. You get that? So as you and I are living temples, and as we come together as a, a representation of God's presence in this world, wherever you go, People are going to persecute you, possibly. Wherever you go, your ideas, biblically, maybe your biblical ideas may be rejected. Your values may be rejected. Wherever you go, you're like the temple. And people may say, hey, who gave you permission to think that way? You know, you know that's wrong to think that way. Who gave you permission to believe that there's such a thing as God-given gender and identity? Objective truth? Who told you, you you're permitted to do that? What's your name? Do you have a license for your business? You have a, you have a license? Let me see your tax returns. You're a nonprofit? Hmm. Let me see your bylaws. You see, persecution, beloved, is coming. It's coming more and more. It's harder for us to be Christians in this world because we are the living temple of God. And wherever we go, people naturally be offended, but we have to remember that God, He gives us His prophetic word to remind us, to encourage us that we're not alone and that He's with us. He gives us His providence in the sense of working all things for His glory. Even if things don't work out the way that we would want to, we must trust that God is God's hand is at play. And that leads us to point number three. Point number three is God's protection. So we have God's prophetic word or God's prophets, number one. Number two, we have God's providence, but the third way that he cares for us is God's protection. And we see this in various parts, starting in verse 5. So Ezra chapter 5, verses 5 to 17 in various parts. I want you to notice verse 5, God intervenes. And God caused the Persians to let the Israelites continue their work until they heard back from the king. So Tethanai says, okay, I'm going to write a letter. Uh, and, and this letter is going to go to the king. And I'm going to ask the king to see if, if Cyrus really gave you guys a decree. Did Cyrus really give you guys a decree? Because if he did, okay, that's one thing, but we're going to make sure. But for some reason, God works. And notice verse 5. Verse 5 now, here's what it says in verse 5. It says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, 
And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by a letter concerning it. Now, I just want you to think about how God's working here. This is countercultural. This is not how it normally works. I mean, if there was something wrong with a, with a building project, and you're being investigated, it is very likely that the officials would say, stop the work for now. Stop the work until we, get, until we hear back from the authorities. And once we get clearance, then you can pick up the work again. So all work would be suspended and halted, right? I mean, that's how it works these days. But imagine this. Tetanai, the governor, says, you know what? Why don't you keep building until we hear back from the king? So until the king says stop, I guess I have no permission to stop you. I mean, that is nothing short of the hand of God orchestrating all things for his purpose and glory. Now, this is a wonderful phrase, the eye of their God. And beloved, I want to say to you this morning, you sitting at home or you listening in your cars or wherever you're watching this, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the eye of God sees you. He sees everything that you're going through. He sees any injustice that you're facing. He sees any struggle that you have. He sees your sins. But he also sees how you're trying to obey him. And he's with you. Even when it doesn't seem like God is with you. I, I want you to see this because in Psalm 33 verse 18, the psalmist says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, not those who fear society or societal pressure. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 34 verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. God hears us. His heart, his eyes are upon the righteous. But notice in verse 16, Psalm 34 16, I put up for you the contrast. It says the face of the Lord is against. This talks about his face of anger. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth, meaning his judgment is going to come and he's going to deal with them. So this possibly, when Ezra uses this phrase, the eye of God, it's possibly a, a play of words, a, a play on words, a contrast to the eye of the Persian inspectors. Like the Persian inspectors are interrogating. They want to see more. And there's a play on words because... The Persian inspectors, scholars tell us that they were, they were popularly known back then as the king's eyes. I mean, that makes sense. You're a governor. So the king is in the capital city, and he depends on his governors to kind of be his eyes, to let him know, okay, there's an uprising here. Okay, things are okay here. Okay, we're dealing with a, a famine or a drought in this region. Right, So the governor and his officials becomes the eyes of the kings or the king's eyes. And it's a play on words that says, well, don't worry about the king's eyes. Because the eyes of God are upon the righteous and his people. Now, we're not going to cover every verse due to time. Uh, but in verses 6 to 17, basically what happens is the governor sends a letter to King Darius inquiring if the Jews... In fact, whether or not they have permission to rebuild the temple. Now, some of this we're going to look at, uh, we're going to come back and look at next week in chapter 6. Right? In chapter 6. But for now, I want you to see verse 11. I want you to see the confidence in the people because they've received the Word of God. The Word of God gives us confidence. The providence of God gives us confidence. And when they are interrogated, 
I want you to see their theological fortitude and their faith. I just want you to see God's faith. So, so keep this in mind. Going from people who might have stole the materials from the grounds of the temple to take it home to rebuild their own stuff. I mean, this is the same people that all of a sudden, because of the word of God, now they're speaking like the prophets. I want you to notice this. Verse 11, it says, this was their reply to the interrogation. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. And the great king was Solomon. That's who they're referring to. But first, I want you to notice they're saying, we are servants. And that's the first thing I want you to see in verse 11. We are servants. So they identify themselves not as free agents, Right? I mean, think about that. They're not saying, okay, we're independently building on our own just because we wanted to. They're saying we're servants. We are here serving a higher authority. We are not building this temple on our own regard our own authority. We are obedient to God. We are servants. And secondly, servants of who? Of the God of heaven and earth. Keep in mind that back in these days in the Old Testament, every people group, they worshiped different types of idols and gods. And, and so they could have been a little bit more politically correct. They could have said, well, we worship our God, the God of Israel. I mean, to make a statement, to say the God of heaven and earth is to say, I know y'all worship your gods, but we worship the God who created everything. There is an objective God. There is a creator. It is our God. Our God happens to be the God of heaven and earth. Our God is bigger than all other said gods and idols. That is a very confident statement that the Israelites are claiming. Yet, yet, they trust that by doing so, they are, they are speaking the truth to God and that God would protect them. I wonder how Tetanai replied. Oh, really? The God of heavens and earth? I wonder what he thought about it. Now you look at verse 12, which is on the screen for you, on on the slide for you as well. Verse 12, it says, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. That is a, a statement of complete confidence in the sovereignty of God. Can you imagine that? This is essentially what they're saying. Look, you know, a great king built that temple that we're trying to rebuild. And the only reason that temple was destroyed is because we sinned. Because our fathers sinned. And as a result, God was the one who gave us over to the Babylonians. It wasn't, it wasn't because the Babylonians were great. The Babylonians were, were nothing but pawns on the divine chess piece. On a divine chessboard. They were just chess pieces on a divine chessboard where God was moving them around. Right? God is completely sovereign over our misfortune. It is, it is not by chance. God was, was punishing us. God was, was disciplining us. And that's why he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy this house and to put us into exile. It is because God is completely sovereign. Now that God has brought us back, we are rebuilding his house. What a statement of confidence. Now, this is a wonderful perspective. Now you look at verses 13 and 15, where we'll wrap this thing up and take, us, take this thing home. 
is that in verses 13 and 15, they basically report the permission that Cyrus granted for the Israelites to return from exile, which you saw earlier in the book of Ezra. And let me read you now verses 13 to 15 specifically, right, what they say. Let me show you this. It says, however, in the first year of, of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. That's what they said. They're just reporting the decree that Cyrus gave. And they're even saying, look, Cyrus said that, that all, all the materials were, that we needed were to be provided, at least in this regard. And so the big idea for today is that Christ, because we worship Christ, Christ cares for his people through his prophetic word, through his providence, and through his protection. Christ cares for his people through his prophetic word, through his providence, and through his protection. And for you and I today, we must remember that we are the people of Christ, that we are the living stones that make up the temple of God, where Christ is the cornerstone. And as long as we cling to Christ, and as long as we anchor ourselves to Christ and his word and his gospel, that Christ continues to speak to us through his word, he helps us understand His Word. He helps us apply His Word. He helps us to gain confidence from His Word. And then we remember that all things, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's, it's, it's the persecution that Christians are experiencing all around the world, or whether it's anything that we're going to face, that God is providentially in control. And lastly, that we will have God's protection. And sometimes, beloved, His protection isn't always the way that plays out in the way where it gives us comfort. We know for the Apostle Paul who was executed for believing in the gospel. We know for the Apostle Peter who was executed for believing in the gospel and ministering the word of Jesus Christ, that protection for them didn't always mean saving of their life. But sometimes the way that God protects us is giving us a spiritual protection that no matter what the world would do to us physically or emotionally or mentally, what they would say to us, that his protection is that he would give us ultimately peace. Peace. His shalom. That we would be able to flourish no matter what happens because one day we will experience the ultimate joy of being back in his presence, which is what the temple is ultimately pointing towards. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and we come before your word and we know, Lord, that your, your word calls us to return to you. Your word calls us to repentance. Your word calls us to revival. Lord, wherever we are at this morning and whatever we're going through, Father, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that no matter what type of oppositions we would, we would encounter because of our faith, as we see in today's passage, Lord, you still protect us. And we must trust, help us to trust, that you are working all things. Even things that seem bad at first, you're working all things for the good of those who are faithful to you 
and for the ultimate glory of magnifying Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, have a blessed Sunday. We love you more than you know.